Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Rich Sheridan, CEO and Chief Storyteller at Menlo Innovations. Now, Rich is a successful entrepreneur and business founder an author of two amazing books, Joy.Inc. and Chief Joy Officer. You see, Rich's passion is inspiring organizations to create joyful cultures. And what they've created at Menlo is very special. In fact, people travel from all over the world to see the unique culture and systems he's created there. It's been recognized by Inc. Magazine as the most joyful company in America. And nearly 20,000 people have visited it to see some of the experiments they run. Everything from co-location to big rooms to actually making every single person's pay visible in the room. Yeah, I have to say Rich has run some experiments that make me even feel uncomfortable. But before we dive in and hear more, let's start where it all began for him and what inspired him on his entrepreneurial journey. I was working for one of the highest flying entrepreneurial tech firms in Ann Arbor at the time. Great entrepreneurial success story. And I was handed, because I'd been working there through my school years, sort of part-time, full-time in the summer. So they knew me. You know, I'm ready to go. And they handed me a Greenfield software project, which for any software engineer, that's the height of, height of excitement, right? It's like, oh, a blank sheet. And I'm going to lead this team. And I'm going to be a programmer on it. And I get to create this brand new product. And that's just exciting, right? And I wanted to do it so well. I wanted to make sure that everything went great. And so I went to my boss and I said, hey, Dan, here's what I want to do. I want to make sure we create the best product ever. I want to go out into the world and meet some customers, talk to them, find out what they really want this to do, what would thrill them and that sort of thing. And he looked at me and folded his hands and he said, Rich, that's why we have Jim down the hall. If you need to know what the product needs to do, you go ask Jim. I said, oh, yeah, I'll go ask Jim. But Jim hasn't been out in the field for 10 years. I mean, he just sits in his office. This is like a manufacturing. Uh, this was a numerically controlled software company that was, you know, helping people hug metal on him. Jim used to do that work, right? But he hadn't done it for 10 years. I said, I'll ask Jim. But I think, you know, some of the things we need to learn. And he looks at me and goes, you don't understand, do you? I said, what? He said, if you want to talk to customers... I'll just stick you in customer service. And my eyes lit up. I said, that would be amazing. Oh my gosh, I could talk to our customers all day long. I could build relationships with them. I could figure out what's really bugging them about our current products and make sure we don't do that. And finally, he's like, I'm not getting to you, am I? He says, if I stick you in customer service, you're never coming out again. You're not going to build any new products. That's going to be your new role. And that's it. So basically, he was saying, get back to work. Stop worrying your pretty little head about making sure it's a great product. Barry, I quit that company two weeks later. <laughs> I looked at it, I said, you're doomed. You will never get out of the box you're in today. And I was right. I mean, they were out of business within five or six years after that because they weren't learning anything. They were only, and again, in your terminology, they were only applying what they knew from years past. Mm -hmm. The world was changing so rapidly. And I thought, these guys are doomed. And I will tell you, when I look back now at that moment, that has crystallized so much of the thoughts that we've put into building Memlo since then to make sure we never make those kind of mistakes again. 
It's really fascinating, right? Like with so many people I have on the show, there's this sort of intuition that is almost baked into fo folks about how to sort of do things differently, right? Or sort of contrary or against sort of many of the prevailing notions about how stuff should be done, right? Like, like there's an expert that you talk to who's a proxy for the customer rather than going to speak uh, to customers yourself and learning. So something about you, just sort of your natural intuition was just to jump out there and, and spend time with the people who had the problems and see and experience it, right? Like not many people have that. What are some of the things you've noticed about yourself that have maybe, you know, others could make that a little more intentional for themselves? Because I think that's always the hard part. It's almost like an automatic response for you. For other people, they're sitting there going, how do you do that? What are some of the signals that make you sometimes go, all right, there's something not quite right here with the way we're doing this. And maybe we should try something different because I know how much of an experimenter you are. What are the signals you sort of look for when you're when you sort of then feel like, am I getting too stuck here? Am I sticking to what I know or what's comfortable to me? What do you look for in I, yourself even? I think all of us have that little place in our guts when something goes wrong whether it's in a meeting or a conversation with a human being or some trajectory in our life we're like this ain't going right and i just learned to pay attention to that signal i didn't know what to do about it all the time it wasn't like oh i've got this thing in my gut things should be different i know what i'm going to go do no the, i know what i'm going to do was the part that i struggled with because i didn't but what i thought to myself was Rich, if you think things can be better, then they probably can. Go figure it out. And I will be honest, the place I went first was authors and books. Tom Peters' book, In Search of Excellence. Peter Drucker's books on management. Peter Singy's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization. Because I looked at the way, I kept looking at everything. And I think the first moment when things just looked so wrong to me, and they, they were wrong for a long time, not just those two weeks, <laughs> right? I mean, like a dozen years too long, right? So I think there's a patience piece to me that probably would confound most people. But I kept saying, okay, there's one of two possibilities here. Either I'm the problem, which we're always, each one of us individually is always part of it. But I thought maybe I'm just not smart enough for this industry. Maybe I just don't get it. Maybe everybody else is succeeding and not me. So I did a little bit of a survey, you know, just talking to my peers. I found out, no, everybody's screwing up the same way. I'm like, okay, if that's true, I'm stuck in a room full of manure. My inner optimist said, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere, <laughs> right? And I went looking for the pony, and I found it. And, you know, and I would name that pony Joy now, <laughs> you know? But the fact matter is when things are that wrong, that's where the opportunities are. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great point, you know? Um, I think this notion of being true to yourself and recognizing when something's not right and maybe owning that moment that I think that it maybe comes with time as well, too. Right. Sometimes people don't even have the confidence to pursue that. Right. There, there, I feel like a lot of the time and even times for myself where we sort of bow to sort of the experience or bow to the, the norm because people will say, well, that's just the way we do things around here. And it's easy. It's the way we've always done them. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of organizational systems the culture exists in many ways because there are things that have worked and helped the company grow. But then there, there are bits that sort of calcify and don't be questioned. 
when you're that newer person or you're someone who is earlier in their career or where you're sort of being led a little bit by the way the culture is pushing people or the, the processes that are in place because that's how they've been done. It's sort of hard to sort of push against that or swim against that. Or So what would be some of your, you know, your little tips to help people when they feel those moments of there's something not right here? How do you think about ways that you could give people some tips about to, yeah. that they could start to push in the other direction and, and find out if there's a better way? I think this is what got us connected in the first place. What you talk about, what I talk about. When those things are going wrong, I will simply encourage people, and this isn't necessarily what everybody wants to hear, it is absolutely a requirement to become a student again. And for me, the teachers, as I said, became the authors in the books. And I will be honest, there's a filter I use with books. I would recommend it for just about anybody because somebody will ask me, Rich, what are the books I should be reading? I'm like, okay, I can tell you the books that have thrilled me. But understand, each of those books came maybe at the right time, or maybe in my right frame of mind, or the author wrote it in a way that made it sense to me. So what I tell people is, go grab a book, maybe one that I recommend. Go read the first 30 or 40 pages. And if it's not pulling you in, just set it aside. Go to the next one. It's either not right for you, or it's not right for the time you're in. And I will tell you, I just found a book like that. Nobody asked me to do this. I don't know if you've heard of this one. Chatter. No, no Chatter by Ethan Cross. No, not it, at all. No. Oh, it's a great book about the, the voice in our heads and how we can control it because we're all defeated. I mean, that's what happens, right? Because what happens is somebody walks in. Let's say you have a bright new idea. You went to a conference. You heard a guy in a webcast and you come into the office the next day and you're like, hey, Rich, I've got this great new idea. And I look at you and go, well, Barry, that's not how we do things here. It's never been done that way. We tried that 10 years ago and it didn't work then. It won't work now. And as soon as you hear that, unless you're incredibly strong-willed, you are defeated right then and there, right? Because you got emails to answer. You got meetings to go to. You got things in front of you and you're like, oh, I can't fight City Hall. And so I will tell you almost every idea dies in that moment, any new idea. Do you ever find that like just as you're falling asleep or just as you're waking up, some of the best, the world looks so clear. And oh, yeah. No, it's not me when I'm running. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, exactly. I, I, go, I take out my headphones and go running now. Then you go run to somebody and like, I got it. And they're like, I don't think that'll work, Barry. That's never worked before. Right? Do you know anybody else who's ever tried that and had it work? And you're like, oh, no, but I think it's really, you know, and then it just dies. I mean, think how many ideas die in that moment. And I tell you, I've seen this work so well. I actually tell this to audiences because when I'm giving a keynote, I tell them, I say, I know what you're thinking. This is a great idea. We're going to defeat it tomorrow. I'm going to arm you with a simple response when that happens. Look them in the eye and say, I get it, but let's try it before we defeat it. Let's run the experiment. And I have seen dramatic change in some of the world's oldest and largest corporations turn on that phrase alone, that quick automated response to the potential defeat of an idea yeah no I, I love it and in many ways it's just never giving an idea a chance really to grow because it gets like you say it gets defeated straight away i think that word try as well is probably one of the most underutilized but most important not only words but like just behavior 
for companies to do innovation? I refer to it as take an approach that says take action versus take a meeting. Because the other one that defeats it, well, that's interesting, Barry. Let's set up a meeting for next week to discuss your idea. We'll form a committee to write a policy on that new idea. I mean, you might, <laughs> that's the cul-de-sac where ideas are sent to die, right? Yeah, well, you know, you remind me, one of my favorite examples of this is Scott Cook, who's the CEO of Intuit, and he's been there for like whatever, as long as that company is alive, so like 20, 30 years. And one of the things that always really strikes me about him is whenever the teams hit a roadblock, whenever there's a debate over who's right or who's wrong, challenge he always puts to people is not let's have a meeting or let's set up a steering committee. It's what's the best experiment we could run in a very short period of time to find out what the right answer is. And, and let's put our effort into designing a good experiment rather than arguing over who's right or who's wrong, or it didn't work 10 years ago, it wouldn't work now. It's to your point again, let's, let's put it to action rather than a meeting to talk about it or analyze it more. Like, like, let's try something. And I think that's a really powerful mechanic, actually, for people to think about is when you're in those moments of whether it's conflict, whether it's unsureness, whether it's, as you say, these ideas being sort of killed on the vine before they ever have a chance to live, how can we just try something small and find out one way or the other? We're going to learn something. But the act that, that people are encouraged to keep trying things in your company is such a powerful cultural element to have because your systems will always evolve then. People will, they're encouraged to keep trying things rather than bring ideas to work for them to be told that's not going to work but rather bring your ideas to work so you can you can try them. You've sort of built a whole company that's probably has that maybe not explicitly said, but it's sort of in your culture of joy at work and what you've built at uh, Menlo, where it seems like every other week people are encouraged to try different ways of working and, um, you know, different ways of configuring their office space, different ways of configuring or how they work with clients, you know, so... How have you worked hard to intentionally, again, and I, and I know it's sort of automatic to you, but how, you know, what are some of the things that maybe the advice you give to others about nurturing that both in yourself and in your teams that so people feel like they can show up and contribute and, and keep trying things? A lot of it has to do with, I view my role as a leader to pump fear out of the room. If I can keep fear at bay as much as possible, and I'm not talking about the kind of things we should be afraid of. Like, we should be afraid of COVID-19. We should be afraid of not making payroll. We should be afraid of walking out into the street without looking both ways. Those are really healthy fears. But I will tell you, the part I had to unlearn, and there was a crystallizing moment where I knew it was me that had to unlearn first, and happy to tell that story too. I was brought up in a world a managerial world. As I started popping out of my little managerial eggshell, and who do you imprint on first? The person who promoted you to that position. Of course, right? always, always, yeah. And he led me with fear for all these years. Mm -hmm. I mean, he'd walk in and he read Tom Peters' book too, and he said, oh, management by walking around. But he morphed that into management by walking around and annoying people. He'd walk into a cube and he'd like, how's it going? What you working on? You almost done? You coming in this weekend? And I mean, my blood pressure would go through the roof. It's like, leave me alone, right? Yeah. But when you get that every single day for years, 
guess how you're going to lead? It's anxious, right? You're just driving anxiety into people all the time. Well, and, and I think there must have been some class in an MBA school somewhere that said, lead your people with fear. If you don't, they'll get away with stuff. They won't actually want to work. Like, really? Because I think people want to do good work when they go to work, right? And so that was my upbringing. And I had to learn how to shed that. And there was this crystallizing moment when I took my eight-year-old into work, when I was a VP leading people like that. Yeah. And she was supposed to be there for the day to watch her dad work so she could be inspired on a work life of her own. It was a take your child to work day moment. And at the end of the day, I asked her, she was eight. I was a brand new, brand new minted VP at the time. And she, I said, Sarah, how was your day? What would you learn? And she said, well, what I learned, Dad, is you're really important here. I said, what? She'd been sitting at my task table, coloring books, crayons, and stickers. I didn't think she was paying attention to anything. And she comes out with that? I said, well, what did you see? She said, well, I saw is nobody here can make a decision without asking you first. Oh. What a gift. <laughs> oh, my God. And of course, she was very proud of her dad. I was instantly mortified. I had created a hero-based organization. I was the number one hero. And the only way to scale in hero-based organizations is to scale the hero. The only way to do that is overtime. And I'm looking at this eight-year-old thinking, I'm going to miss the best parts of being a dad. You know, what I love about this, Rich, though, is that you could hear it. You could hear it like the deep underlying intent of that simple statement that you're important here. And the way you interpret it is that you're the bottleneck. Yeah, this organization is not going to move faster than me now. <laughs> it takes a skill to hear that, right? And or to be open to hearing that. And it's hard because when someone says, your kid says you're important, many people might feel proud and want to go out and tell 25 more people what to do, right? And yet you're able to sort of like peel back a few layers here and, and actually go like, uh-oh, I'm the problem here, actually. I need to do something different. And that takes a lot of humility and self-awareness and work. And I love your point as well about conditioning, right? So much of our leadership behavior is a conditioning from the person who we worked from. You know, I've had some really just phenomenal role models, really, of leaders around me in my career who feel like I've stolen a little bit of every bit of them uh, along the way that has helped formed me. But Sometimes that was just I was lucky because they were just a, a person who was around me. And maybe later in life, I realized to be more intentional that like that's what I should be looking for is, is people who I thought were interesting characters in how both they lead and design. And I do want to talk about this actually as well, because for me, again, one of my fun experiences in the last sort of let's call it real job I ever had when I worked in ThoughtWorks I still remember on the first day where I joined and the whole motion was there were no managers in the company. No, the, I didn't have a manager. And I still remember like on the first day or two, I had to do something like I need to take a week off or something. And I was I was joining. So I was like, who who do I book a holiday with? I'm going away, you know, my wife or whatever. And people were just like, yeah, you just take it. And to me, I was just like, uh, yeah, no, I, I know I'm going to do that. But who do I tell? And they're like, no, you just just take, you know, if you're not on a project. Well, yeah, just take the time off. You're cool. See you later. I never felt like so such a feeling of oddness, but also exhilaration of going like, wow, how unique a design is this? You know, and people looked at me like I was odd asking, who should I notify that I'm taking a holiday? They were sort of looking at me like, what's wrong with you? You just take a holiday. 
You know, and when I have observed and you've been kind enough to virtually bring me on a tour of what the amazingness you've created at Menlo as well, too. You know, I just got that feeling speaking to the people in there, you know, like that, that, that kind of what seems so counterintuitive to everybody else is just the rhythm of the company you mm -hmm. created there. So what are some of the things that sort of resonate with you from that or, or and you think about are you getting shocked now even by some of the stuff the team put to you in terms of well, challenging the culture you're building? The last year, Barry, this pandemic year we've been through, I will tell you, I thought I was pretty flexible. I thought I was pretty open-minded, but I literally thought I was witnessing the death of my company because for 19 years, we have been this in person, two to a computer, shoulder to shoulder, big open room. And of course, you know, I used to joke, you know, if the governor told me I couldn't do that, I, I'd probably quit. And then, and then I'd always say, but why would the government ever can't do that? Like, oh, crap. You know, I better stop saying things like that. And it was interesting because the first few weeks, I was literally in this closed mind, panic state have I just lost the thing I worked so hard to create over 19 years, right? Yeah. And then one day, maybe I'll attribute it to this listening skill that you think I have. Uh, I want you to call my daughters and tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just send them the podcast, I promise. There we go, yes. Molly on our team, we, were, we have this part of Menlo we call high-tech anthropology, which is all about going out in the world, studying the use. Remember that? argument I had with my boss, well, we've institutionalized going out in the world and observing people in their native environment to learn how should the software be designed, right? This is what our high-tech anthropologists do. Well, their job is on airplanes, in cities, at workplaces, in factories, wherever we're doing it, watching people. Well, guess what? Nobody's getting in airplanes. Nobody's going. You can't, even if you went to their buildings, it wouldn't be there. And so we've got this new project with a company down in Texas in the pandemic, which was great. I mean, it was wonderful. We landed a new piece of business. And all I'm doing is my brain's just collapsing down like, well, we're screwed. We can't do this. And Molly, one of our high-tech anthropologists says, you know, because I was hiding, I think I was hiding my emotions pretty well. She leans in, she goes, this will be so exciting to figure out how to do this. And literally like a house of cards, all of my fears just went away. And it was like this, the, the, my eyes were opened because it probably been about six weeks into the pandemic at this point. I looked around and I'm like, oh my God, they've all adapted this way. They all embrace this. This will be so exciting. I was the only one who hadn't. Thank God I didn't, you know, tell them that I'm afraid of it, right? And it rebirthed me. I mean, if there was a moment of unlearning, relearning that's happened in my lifetime, I don't think I'm ever going to hit a bigger one than the last year. Because I'd like to believe I brought the world a whole bunch of new ideas with my thoughts and we crafted this thing. And then it was all taken away. You know, it was one of these things where can it be put back together? And quite frankly, do I have the energy to do that? Do I even want to like reinvent myself in our company? I'm really good at this other thing. Right. And it turned out I didn't need to do anything. We had already created the environment that allowed them to spring forth. And I just got out of the way. And I will tell you, as I think about what does post pandemic memo look like, A, I'm excited about it. B, and I have no idea. And C, I'm A OK with that. 
that's a really like it's an inspiring story to hear too as well right not, not only from yourself because i think in many especially business founders were probably sitting there at that moment in march and april where it was pretty bleak right like and and you i know how much you care about your staff and and any you know anyone who's put that much time and effort into a business right like there, there's people all over the world that can empathize with that situation but there's something so special though as you're saying where actually the the thing that you have really built is this sort of muscle for people to respond in uncertain circumstances to not to see it as an excitement you know i would say uncertainty is an opportunity for people who are willing to grab it and here's molly going yeah. Well, it's so exciting. I'm like, I mean, that statement couldn't have been any farther away from how I was feeling in that moment when she said it. <laughs> and that's it. And, and I think everybody has those moments, right? I think when you're, when you're in the midst of some challenging times, like everyone's mindset can, can go to those sorts of places, as you were describing, like you're thinking about a lot of stuff. But it's amazing to think there's also the other end of the spectrum there and people who you've cultivated over time are like, great, this is a new type of challenge we haven't dealt with. Let's go figure it out. I just, I feel like software products is that that's really what it's all about, right? It's one of these things that you know the least about when you start, it's, it, you learn as you build it, but the ability to, to face into that and course correct as you go, that's what Alpha makes great products. I always find whether the products is your company, whether it's your culture, whether it's working in new and different ways. I think that's, that's sort of inspiring for folks because there's so many fun experiments, you know, I think for people who don't or, or haven't had maybe the opportunity yet, and I, I guarantee you, I'm just going to flood uh, Rich's inbox now and tell, tell everybody you should do like a, at least a virtual tour of Menlo. If you don't get a chance to do it in person, hopefully in the, in the months and years ahead, you, you will too. But I think just like going around the company from the way, you know, it's it's one big room that everybody is based in this one big room and um, you encourage teams to sit and work together, paired programming, two engineers writing at, at a desk together, like the, the teams to be co-located with their, the people they're building the software for. It's all great. My obviously personal favorite is that you have everyone's sort of grade and salary up on the wall. It's totally transparent in terms of like you know, when you walk in, like you can you can know what other people are roughly in a band of paid their level, how they're trying to improve themselves. And it's all on the wall for everybody to see. There's nothing hidden here. You know, I love it. And I think when people sort of hear those types of experiments, they're sort of panicked, right? Like, oh, yeah, I've had visitors from Fortune 500s literally hyperventilated this idea, right? Like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, everybody knows what everybody's making. Like, yeah. And here, this falls into a general managerial edict I have. If you don't share information, people make up stuff in its absence. And they never make up a better story than the truth. They always make up a worse one. Right on. And again, it's sort of this counterintuitive thing that I think you figured out like really well, is that the prevailing thinking is often, I, you know, in the most part, is incorrect. Where there's truth, where there's <clears throat> real data, where there's it dispels the inertia, you know, it, it dispels the energy that's burnt on. I wonder what that person's getting paid. Am I oh than them? They're a senior widget maker. I'm a senior widget maker. And, you know, like I, how much energy in companies is burnt on that rather than to your word of joy, rather than people just doing awesome stuff and loving it. 
I think there's so many of those misnomers that you've sort of really <laughs> nailed, you know, and I, I, I that's why I love I love it. So I got to ask you then, like, so as we're looking ahead then to like whatever the future of work is for, you know, Menlo for everybody out there, what are your spider senses sort of kicking off at the moment? What are some of the what could be contrary viewpoints that are that are cooking up in your mind at the moment or maybe some of the examples you've seen the team start to play around where you're like going, oh, I didn't think it was going to work like that. Yeah, it's been fun. I mean, a year in, we're still experimenting with stuff to see if we can make it work better. I think, first of all, broad learning for all of us, that the biggest challenge of this pandemic is loneliness and isolation. The separation of human beings into their spaces to be safe, to be healthy. But that, you know, I talked to somebody the other day, said, Rich, it's been six months since I've even talked to my boss. Like, wow, how can that be? Right. And I personally believe that there will be a coming back together, whatever form that takes. I also think we need to recognize as leaders and for ourselves individually that that coming back together is probably going to be nearly as difficult as the separation was. I don't think it's just simply, oh, we're all back together again. Awesome. I think we've all gotten used to being in our little caves and our isolation and our library quiet and all that. And if we start coming back together, we start getting back in traffic again. I actually did a customer visit a couple of months ago, first time in the pandemic, drove to a customer here in Southeast Michigan. And the traffic, I mean, it was weird, Barry. Like getting in a car, getting on expressways, other cars around me. I'm like, Wow, people do this every day, don't they? And I'm like, I haven't done this for a year. And it was just weird. I, I literally, that night, I was exhausted just doing what was the normal daily activities in my life. We need to appreciate there's going to be an anxiety going back that is going to take a while, just like the anxiety of what happened a year ago took a while. And so we need to be open to that. I think we need to be open to new ways of working, whatever that means. I know I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm not assuming that, you know, three months from now or six months from now, Memo will look exactly the way it was. And, you know, and if it did, that's okay, too. Uh, I'm not saying it shouldn't, but I think we've, you know, simple example for us, these virtual tours. We've never did virtual tours, ever. Never taught our classes virtually. Why on earth would we stop that? after we can host people in our building. We've had visitors from 59 countries and 38 states who literally, like you, you didn't have to leave California to come visit. You well, know, and it, it was really special and intimate. I, I had a great, really great time. It was amazing. Yeah. And so, you know, we didn't know if it would work. We ran the experiment and it worked better than we thought it would. And it's worked. And we've had over 2,000 people come just on the virtual tours alone. And of course, we're going to continue offering and so, yeah, I just think, you know, and I think the other thing is, and I, I hear this a lot now, so I think people are beginning to recognize it. We have learned more about people simply because we're appearing into their homes, right? We're seeing their cats. We're seeing their kids. We're seeing what they have to deal with in life. We're seeing their environments. And I think we need to really embrace that humanity, that there is something we've learned about the people who work with us and for us that we would have never learned otherwise. And we've got to hang on to that. 
Yeah, no, I love it. That, I'm with you on that one. That That's my favorite. I feel like people are seeing the whole person now, not just the employee. And I think that's really special. It's just like really special because it brings you closer to people's lives. You know, like um, so many people that I, I know only would have ever known, like in cubicle 4735. I, you know, I know I know all sorts of things about them, right? I, yeah. I know the art they like. I, I know they're a musician. I know parts of their family that they like pets, whatever it is. And one of my favorite ones is Ken Beck, who is extreme programming. He's the first person I ever had on the show, right? Yeah. So what Kent does, he's a uh, like crazy guitarist, loves. He literally has a guitar rack in his house that like literally runs the, the length of a wall. But what he does is sort of before he gets on every meeting, he just takes out his guitar and he starts playing or practicing a song. So every time you join a meeting with Kent, he's in the middle of playing some sort of song. And I, I just like love it. You know, people like get to their next meeting early because they know if they're meeting. <laughs> I would hear playing music. I would do that for sure. Yeah. You know, I just, there's just so many like great little moments like that, you know, that are just happening in the world. And I think that's great. You know, like I think we're, we've had much deeper empathy for people as you sort of are alluding to, right? It's you understand their situation, like that they're, what their context switching, not just between the work mm-hmm. tasks, but at home and their life. And I think that brings a stronger culture because we learn more about each other. We can recognize the, the whole person again. And I just think that brings Bill's better culture. It brings people closer. Uh, they empathize um, and they perform better then because they, they understand one another. They like deeper relationships. And for me, I think that's one of the biggest things we can really take away from what has been the biggest sort of remote work experiment of our entire lives is like that there ha- the people still have shone through, through all of that. And I think that's something really special for me as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I also think the voice call has gone the way of the fax machine. Very seldom do I have voice calls anymore. It's this, you know, and so. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So I guess then looking forward then is the last question I really want to ask you then is, what are you most excited about yourself? You know, you've done so much. You've built these businesses. You've written books that have inspired people all, all over the world. What's going to bring you joy next, I suppose, is well, what everybody wants to know. Yeah, I will tell you, it would be impossible to answer that question without talking about my granddaughters, who are now six, four, one, and one. It's <laughs> twins game at the end. You know, I loved... I loved being a dad, especially a dad of young kids. But being a grandparent of young kids, it's just amazing to watch how they learn. And, you know, and I don't have the, I don't have the noise in my head of being their parent, right? So I can really <laughs> focus my attention. You can just buy them ice cream and drop them Absolutely. off. Absolutely. Right? But, you know, but I'm on the floor with them. I'm playing with them. I'm reading them books and all that kind of stuff. And that is just pure joy. So, For me, the delightful thing about Menlo is we've created a company where nobody has to work overtime, including me. And so I get to spend a lot of time with them. And it isn't like I'm trading away one thing for another. And so that's exciting. And I will be honest, uh, this past year has reinvigorated my entrepreneur, which I won't say it was gone, but, you know, I was in a pretty pretty neat little predictable space. I knew what my days were going to be like. I knew what my weeks were going to be like. And all of a sudden, boom, all gone. (laughs) Like you're an entrepreneur again. 
And it took me a while, but I got excited about that. And I'm still excited about that. And I'm excited about what com comes next simply because I have no idea. Well, I think that's a great note to, for everybody to sort of dial into as well as uncertainty is opportunity. And it's good to see that it, the uncertainty is, is lighting you up probably even more. Who knows? But thank you very much for coming on the show, sharing your stories and lots of your insight. It, it's real been a great pleasure getting to connect with you, Rich, and delighted that we could have this uh, show together. Thanks, Barry.